This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Nebraska talking about a group of outcasts who confessed to a crime they had no recollection of. Then we'll discuss the first person to be put to death in Nebraska since 1959. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Cornhusker State. If you think only guilty people confess to murders, you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, false confessions aren't as rare as you'd think. More than 25% of the 365 people exonerated in recent decades by the Innocence Project had confessed to their alleged crime. Young people are particularly vulnerable to confessing, especially when stressed, tired, or traumatized. But they're not the only ones susceptible to a false admission. Okay, so what on earth could possibly motivate an innocent person into confessing to a crime that they didn't commit? Turns out there are several possible reasons. Sometimes people are lied to by police, It's surprisingly legal for law enforcement to use deceptive tactics when interrogating suspects. In some cases, the police will claim that they already have enough evidence to prove a person's guilt, even though they may not have any proof at all. Interviewers tend to believe they can assume guilt, and they believe that they can spot a liar. However, research has revealed that police are no better than college students in detecting deception. Occasionally, someone will falsely confess to avoid a potentially harsher sentence. Other times, they just want the interrogation to stop. Police interrogations can be taxing and last for hours. There are many other reasons that could play a part, but maybe we need to change the way we think about confessions. Okay, so multiple people suggested this case to us, probably because HBO aired a short series called Mind Over Murder in June that examines this case. I have not seen that. Yeah, I had never heard about it until I started looking into this case. So I started watching it, and it has people from the town and all that. It's interesting. So let me take you back to 1985 in the small Midwestern town of Beatrice, Nebraska. Do you mean Beatrice? No. I watched the (laughs) docuseries, and I've been pronouncing it as Beatrice. It's Beatrice. At least that's what they said. So it's in the southeast portion of the state. It's south of Lincoln and not too far from Kansas. In Beatrice lived a doting 68-year-old grandmother by the name of Helen Wilson. Helen was a widow who lived by herself in a small brick one-bedroom apartment on the first floor. But she still got a lot of socialization in. Several times a week, she would play bingo. And she volunteered watching nursery-aged children at her nearby Methodist church. Her family adored her, and she was the glue that held them together. She had two sons and a daughter, and they went on to have children of their own. In 1985, Helen had seven grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. That seems young, 68, to have that many great-great-grandchildren, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. She loved writing them poems on their birthdays, which is so sweet. So on Tuesday, February 5th in 1985, Helen's son, Daryl, gave her a visit, and this was normal. Later that evening, 
Daryl's wife Katie stopped by. They would typically all get together and share some coffee, but Helen wasn't feeling very well that day because she had a chest cold, so the two left earlier than usual. Later that night, just before midnight, Katie tried calling Helen to remind her to take her medication, but she didn't answer. Helen's sister lived in the same apartment complex, and the next morning she went to check on Helen. She walked into a brutal scene. Her sister discovered Helen's body lying on her back with her nightgown pulled up and an afghan was tied around her face. Her hands were also bound. She and her husband called 911 around 9.30 a.m. There was blood everywhere and it appeared like she had struggled. Yeah, the sheets were stained with blood and the autopsy revealed that she had pneumonia and likely died of suffocation. And this documentary will show you the afghan on her face, the crimes. Yeah, it's very brutal. She had also been sexually assaulted. Ugh. How how can you know, break in to a sweet little grandmother's home and it's sexually so, I know. assault them? I just, I don't. Elderly stuff gets to me too because I always just think of, you know, my sweet little granny yeah. I had that lived alone. And I'm just, who would, oh, it's, uh-uh. I don't know, but the attacker's blood was found on her mattress, on a wall, and in her underwear. And they also left behind semen. Helen fought. She had blood under her nails, and they believed that she fought until she couldn't anymore. The investigators also noticed something strange. A fresh pot of coffee had been made, so whoever committed this murder felt comfortable enough to stay there for a while. Which, again, who could do that? And then, I'm going to make me... Right. The police discovered the home had been broken into, but they ruled out a robbery because nothing valuable was missing. They started to think that maybe this was connected to another case, because just a couple of years prior, there were attacks on three elderly women in their houses. Mm. They all fought off the attacker, but they didn't leave behind any evidence and no arrests were ever made. Before they could look into that, a man named Bruce Allen Smith became a suspect. There was a witness the night of Helen's murder who reported seeing Bruce at a bar. The witness said that Bruce threatened to rape one of the women there, and then he was kicked out of the bar. Can you even imagine going to a bar and there's some guy threatening to rape people? How how does that even happen? You're just going up to people saying, I'm I'm going to rape you? I don't know. I don't know. (sighs) He was then dropped off somewhat close to Helen's apartment, and another witness reported seeing blood on Bruce the next day. So the police found Bruce and questioned him. But, of course, he denied everything. He also provided blood samples and DNA. Turns out the blood type of the samples from the scene was a specific and rare type, and Bruce didn't match it, so they let him go. Soon after, the police rounded up six potential suspects that were all possibly involved in the murder. Their names were Joseph White, Thomas Winslow, Ada Taylor, Deborah Sheldon, James Dean, and Kathy Gonzalez. They were given the moniker the Beatrice Six. So this all stemmed from a local resident named Lisa Pondendorf telling police that on the night of this murder, she had seen Joseph, Tom, and Joanne pulling into Helen's driveway. Then, Lisa said on the following morning, Ada told her that she and Joseph killed Helen. When police eventually began questioning Joseph, Thomas, and Ada, they seemingly cracked. 
Joseph told them that he wasn't involved. Thomas and Ada said that they did participate, and Ada brought up the name Cliff. So police talked to Cliff, and Cliff said his wife, Deborah, was also there. Good grief. I know. So they talked to Deborah, and she said she was there, and so was another man named James Dean. And then, later, a sixth woman named Kathy, who lived above Helen, said she was also there. So all these people... It's like they kept more and more coming forward. I was there, too. I was there, too. So these people just all were there, like a house party, making a pot of coffee? Well, it's very strange. So it's six six suspects, and here's the big kicker. Even though five of six of them ended up saying they were involved, not a single one of them could remember being in the apartment that night. What? So they were... Like, confessing to the murder, but didn't know any details. That, Very strange. Yeah. So, a psychologist named Wayne Price suggested to them that maybe they repressed their memories. Sure, Jan. I know. I'm not a psychologist, but this dude thought all six, or all five of the six people repressed their memories. Anyway, some believe that in the interrogations, they were threatened with a death penalty, shown crime scene evidence, and were fed information that they didn't know prior. When they began confessing, all of their statements were inaccurate, and they kept changing. No one could remember who did what. Nothing was the same. James was the one. He kept denying it from the get-go. He said he wasn't there. He didn't do it, yada, yada. But then he started talking to the psychologist, and he became convinced that he would gain a vision of things when he took a nap. That's not how naps work, sir. Less than a week after his sessions with this psychologist, he suddenly remembered being an accomplice. I feel that I remembered it in my sleep, said Dean. I had a memory loss, which just kind of just, I didn't have no idea about none of this stuff. These confessions would be the only thing that tied anyone in the group to Helen Wilson's murder. That's it. Regardless of claiming his innocence, Joseph White received life in prison, Thomas Winslow got 50 years, Ada Taylor got 40 years, and the other three got 10 years of incarceration. They were convicted in 1989, but over the years, Joseph White did not give up fighting for his innocence. In 2005, an attorney named Doug Stratton was referred to Joseph. No DNA analysis was done during their trial. They had no DNA, no evidence, but they were all saying, we did it. So, I mean, when someone says you did it, I guess you just... Doug convinced Gage County to order 40-plus items tested for DNA, and guess what? Not a single piece of DNA matched any of them. So, obviously, since the 80s, DNA made a lot of advancements, so they were able to make a definitive match. The blood and semen left behind in Helen's apartment belonged to Bruce Allen Smith, the guy that was a suspect in the first place. Oh, fuck. But his stuff didn't match back then. I don't know if it was just a fluke because it was only tested once. Mm -hmm. But then when they tested it later on, it was a match. Everyone was shocked, of course, because he was eliminated. But turns out he had a connection with the apartment building because his own grandmother lived there, which would make sense why he showed up. 
The analyst at the Oklahoma lab named where the tests were performed and was later accused of falsifying evidence. (sighs) Yeah. Joyce Gilchrist was the analyst and was eventually discredited for her work and was found partly responsible for at least three other wrongful convictions. Oh, my God. She was accused of forging evidence in hundreds of cases Mm -mm. and was fired in 2001 for fraud. She did pass away in 2015. But yeah, it goes to show you like, well, if his DNA didn't match what happened, well, maybe if there's a someone corrupt working there, that's why. Well, Bruce also had a rap sheet. He was arrested for rape in 1981 and was also convicted of burglary and served time in Oklahoma between 1987 and 1989. Bruce was never charged with rape and murder because he died of AIDS in Oklahoma in September of 1992. So finally, in 2009, the Beatrice Six were exonerated, and of course, several lengthy lawsuits followed. Joseph White, the one who always maintained his innocence, served more than 18 years of his sentence. Unfortunately, he died in a work-related construction accident in Alabama at the age of 48 before he could see any of the lawsuit money. The other five are still alive and maintaining a low profile. Ada said that her family, including her daughter, still view her as a murderer, even though she's been exonerated. The wrongful convictions of the Beatrice Six would result in the surviving members of the group being awarded $28 million in damages in 2006. In 2019, the Washington Post wrote that, quote, the wrongful convictions were a product of both aggressive interrogations and flawed science, entangling more and more suspects as their false memories grew more fanciful. Most of the suspects were familiar with trauma in some way, according to the lawsuit, Some were mentally ill or intellectually challenged. And so, for most, the idea that they could have repressed something terrible didn't strike them as crazy. So the HBO series Mind Over Murder examines the false confession. It gets into the the case a lot more because a few of these, of the Beatrice Six, are still saying they have memories of being there suddenly. That's so weird. It's almost like a group... It's something psychological that I don't e- I don't know how to explain, but it's it makes no sense. It's like they made up memories in their head after the fact because at the time they didn't remember, and then as time grew on, as they slept and had a meeting with a psychologist, suddenly they're like, "Oh, we remember it." It's so strange. No, that's so bizarre. So some of them are like, "No, I remember it. I was there." Mm-mm. Yeah. So I got a lot of other information from Oxygen Cinemaholic. And the Daily Beast, but it's a very strange story. I'd recommend watching it. It shows interviews of some it. of them were, and it's so strange to me that they just they were some remember it. I don't know. Those are were they on drugs? No. Well, I was watching. I didn't write this in my notes, but one of the six was sexually abused and stuff since she was a child. They had all almost all of them were had trauma in their lives, like bad trauma or like intellectual disabilities where it would be very easy to be swayed or convinced. They were persuasive people. Not that that's bad, but you know what I'm saying. They were... Mm -mm. Don't love that. Yeah. It's strange. Let's take a break real fast. All right. What do you got for me? (sighs) I'm sweating. I am too. (laughs) 
1977, Jane McManus was a 26-year-old waitress and photography student in Omaha, Nebraska. She was born in 1951, the third of 10 kids. Wow. I know. This is like, what's his name? The one that just announced he's having another baby. (laughs) Nick Nick Cannon. Cannon. Lord have mercy. Her mother was a homemaker and dad sold real estate. She was an adventurous girl who liked to cook and sew. She didn't do the best in school, but she didn't do the worst either. Okay. I see you. (laughs) She attended the University of Nebraska in Omaha for a year before she left there and enrolled at Denver University. Hmm. But then after a year there, she went back to Omaha. She took a job as a secretary and met her boyfriend, Tucker. He said she had a spirit like he had never seen, and he had to be around it. The two traveled. They eventually moved in together. She took art photography classes at the Metropolitan Technical Community College. But their hot romance eventually burned out. I know. Don't they always? (laughs) Tucker moved out, and her sister Martha moved in. They lived in a little apartment on 67th Street. On the early morning of June 11th, Harold Oti was walking home after a night out. As he strolled down the sidewalk, he saw 26-year-old Jane through the window. She was sleeping on the sofa. He entered through the back door and stole her stereo. He carried it outside, put it down behind the garage, and went back inside the apartment. But this time, Jane woke up. He told her he was going to rob her and rape her. He knocked her back on the couch. She started fighting back. And that's when Odie sliced her forehead with his knife to prove that he was serious. He said once he cut her, the rest was easy. He then raped her, forced her to go upstairs to get money. Once upstairs, he stabbed her a total of 15 times. To the point where she was just begging him to kill her. He then grabbed a hammer and hit her five times over the head before he strangled her with a belt. And he didn't know her prior to this? Did not know her. Was walking by like people would walk by on your sidewalk. Saw her sleeping on her couch. Yes. So brutal. Insane. Yes. Jane's brother, John, came by the house early that morning and found his sister's battered body lying upstairs in her home near the Axarbin, I'm probably butchering that, racetrack. Hmm. An autopsy would show all 15 stab wounds were major. There were injuries to her neck and throat, indicating that she had been choked. Her head was severely bruised, indicating that she had been struck with a blunt object, and she had numerous bruising and scratches all over her body. Jane's sister, Laura, planned her funeral. A few days later, their mother went back to the apartment. She had called Goodwill and had them come pick up her belongings that they didn't want or that were too painful Mm -hmm. for the family to keep. Think about that next time you go Goodwill shopping. Yeah, that's sad. That's so sad. You don't think about that when you're just going through. No, that's true. All the things. So Harold had fled Omaha not long after this and went to Florida. But he came back a month later. 
I know. There were very few leads in this case, but then a woman told police that she was attacked by a man with a knife. She was able to escape. She was able to describe the car he was in and told them, you know, look, he escaped on foot. Police did find a knife in the car and the car was traced to a worker that worked at the racetrack. Wow. You know, the one nearby Mm -hmm. the apartment. He had loaned the car to Harold that night, he told police. Oh, boy. Police also were able to identify the stereo in the horse track's tack room that it had belonged to Jane. The owner of the stereo told them he had bought it from Harold. Ugh. Harold was tracked down six months later at the Florida Downs racetrack near Tampa and was arrested in January of 1978. He talked with police more than eight hours, voluntarily giving them his statement, full confession, and the graphic details on the rape and murder of Jane. And this was all tape recorded. He said that he killed her in a panic after she woke up during the robbery. That is not a panic move. You you literally... You're breaking into a home. You're breaking in. Yes, she's awake. So leave. Yeah, don't. And you would have. Why would you? Okay, if you kill her in a panic, but you raped her first. Yeah, and then make her go upstairs. Give me a break. Yeah, it's bullshit. Anyways, he would later recant this, saying he was coerced by police. He did confess to other crimes, rapes, and attempted rapes. He said the interviewers fed him the info on Jane's murder and forced the answers while he was under duress. So Harold was born in 1951 in New Jersey. He was the third of 13 children. Jeez. Six brothers and six sisters. At four, he went to live with his aunt and uncle in Pennsylvania after he was told that his mother did not want him. Which is fucking sad. He made good grades and was a good student. He said sometimes he was punished by being whipped with a razor strap or locked in the basement overnight naked. What? He was scared of water as a child, and his aunt would hold his head under water trying to get him over his fear. They fucking tortured this kid. What in the world? They, they, that's, yeah, that's just completely fucked up. Yeah. His aunt died when he was in the eighth grade, and he returned to his mother's. (sighs) Well, I mean, where else was he going to go? Well, like, do you know, did she have other, did the no. aunt take other kids, just him? No, just him. What in the world? Yeah. Okay, whatever. Weird. He did not do well in school and was suspended in grade nine. He would sometimes be forced to sleep on the streets. It was then he took a job at a local racetrack when he was 15. Mm. He would clean stalls, feed horses, and walk them. He went on to work at major racetracks all along the East Coast and the Midwest for the next 11 years. I mean, he had a shitty childhood and adulthood. I'm not making excuses for him, but... Yeah. He was convicted on April 13th, 1978 of first-degree murder. On June 20th, 1978, he was sentenced to death by three-panel judge. They would say the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, and manifested exceptional depravity by ordinary standards of mortality and intelligence. Basically, it was the worst thing they'd ever seen. Yeah. Later, the Nebraska Supreme Court affirmed the conviction and sentenced him in December of the next year. 
He maintained his innocence, said his confession again was coerced. He appealed this eight times in the 16 years he was incarcerated. Harold was executed by electric chair on September the 2nd, 1994 at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln. He was 43. 43? I'm almost 43. That's super young. He declined a final statement. He was the first person to be executed in Nebraska since 1959, and that was Charles Starkweather. Sweat poured off of his head as he was strapped in the same electric chair used back in 1959. Mm. Just a few minutes later, 2,400 volts of electricity coursed through his body. Smoke rose from his left leg after the third volt. He was pronounced dead at 12.33 a.m., roughly 10 minutes after the switch was thrown. They did it like around midnight? They always do executions at midnight. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. They're always at midnight. Because sometimes families or other people watch them Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. That just seems like such a strange time. They're always at midnight. Do you know why? Well, I feel like we should. Get on that. Google that. Get on it. Okay. Harold's final days are documented on the TV show 48 Hours titled Death by Midnight. And you can look Mm. this up and watch it. It's terrible. I feel like it's so sad that this woman died for no reason. Like, no reason. She just was sleeping and he saw her in. It could have been any one of us. Anybody. Any, yes. Crimes like that are very scary to me. because The random ones. Yeah, there's not, she didn't piss him off. Nope. She didn't, I mean, nope. not that that would be okay if she did piss right. him off, but I'm just saying like, there was no, there's nothing. You can't prevent stuff like that. Right. You know, it's just really scary. It's terrifying. And then you have this man who grew up to be this depraved mm-hmm. person, but then you look back at everything that he's ever known has been awful. Yeah. No excuses, but it's like, it's just sad all the way around. It's terrible for her family. It's just awful. I hate I hate all of these terrible murders and crimes, but the ones that are just fucking because yeah. are the ones that, to me, are the most haunting. Because you're he like, just what? wanted to steal in the first place? Just stole so a stereo. So he had not murdered. He really no. had murdered anyone he else. never murdered. That just seems like such a brutal murder for it to be your yeah. first one. Overkill times 10. I mean, you, you stabbed her, bashed her head. Choked her. Get the fuck. I have no training in any of this, but it like makes me wonder, was it, I'm just speculating. Don't come for me. But like, is it rage at his mom and his aunt that he's like. Very well could be. I don't know. I mean, that sounds definitely like a rage killing. So much rage for a stranger. Yeah. That did everything that you. Anyways. So I did Google it. Why executions happen at midnight. And, and. So, scheduling the time of death for 12.01 a.m. gives the state as much time as possible to deal with last-minute legal appeals and temporary stays. So, like, something can come up. Oh, this is a good reason, too. One other advantage, this isn't the main reason, it's just an advantage, of holding executions in the middle of the night is that the rest of the prison's inmate population is locked down and presumably asleep. 
So that minimizes the threat of any sort of unrest at the appointed hour. So, you know, yeah, they're not likely fighting each other or doing any other shenanigans. Right. Hmm. Yeah. That's, I honestly had never heard that before. And you call yourself a murder person. A murder person. <laughs> I do not. I do. I, that's, She's like, no. I'm not a murder Hell no, person. I'm not. Do you know why they always wear a mask? What do you mean? The executioner. The executioner or the ex- the person being executed? Why they wear a hood? No, the person doing it, like the executor. Wear a mask, like mm-hmm. a whole face mask, mm-hmm. like a hood? Mm-hmm. Probably so people don't know who it is. Yeah, that's right. Well, no shit. Why else would you wear a mask, Lacey? God. <laughs> so you don't get blood on your face? I don't know. I've never been to... Uh, I've not either. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. And you can't have alcohol with your last meal. Do you know that? I would assume you can't have alcohol in prison at all. Yeah, but I mean... Lord. Anyway, now I'm going down to all the other rabbit holes... Well, we don't have new patrons to announce. Because we just recorded last night. We did. We're trying to get ahead of the game so that we don't have to take a week off. So we are recording early. So you'll be watching different things in the future. But what are you watching right now? What are you, what's, you just binge scary movies immediately. As soon as they come out. No break. As soon as they come out. So you just watch The Orphan. I watch The Orphan. I can't wait to watch... The, the new docu-series that are oh, coming there out, yeah. all the ones. Mm-hmm. And now i got to watch this one you just told me about on HBO. Yeah, I can't remember how many episodes there are. It's maybe five or six. I can't remember. But I tried watching a scary movie called The Apostle on Netflix. It was just kind of boring to me. Didn't finish it. I need to stop because I'm not going to have anything to watch I know. In October. Well, I just shared this on our Facebook, but there's a list of all the scary movies you can watch on all the different streaming services. And I was going through that last night trying to find something. But then I get in my head because I read what it's about and I'm like, eh, it doesn't yeah, no, I did sound thing. good and I waste all my time. Have you seen Malignant? No. I started watching it and I feel like I stopped because I thought it was dumb. I've heard mixed things about that. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know the cover. Yeah. Huh, I've heard maybe I'll things. give it a go again. I yeah. don't know. Sometimes I'm just not in the mood for certain things, and I don't know. No, I'm the same way. We uh, also talked about <sighs> we want to do spooky, spooky season road trips. Yeah, that'd be fun. So obviously we're in Arkansas, so we need somewhere regional to us. Yeah, because we're just starting this. We're just starting this. <laughs> We can't afford to get fly. We can't afford Maybe. to fly off to Boston. I I would oof, I'd love to go there. But well, I'd love to go to Salem. Well, I mean, I'll do anything to get out of here. I so. would love a New Orleans trip, but that might take extra planning. Maybe, so if you some Mississippi If you know of any spooky anything mm-hmm. that we can Yeah. We we need like a five hour drivable road trip just the two of us yeah let's see so people are like we have no idea where that is so as far west as dallas oklahoma city as far north as kansas city kansas city st louis as far east as nashville nashville ish how far away is 
Is Alabama? I don't know. Mississippi. It's pretty much easy. Yeah. Uh, Southern Arkansas and then northern Louisiana. I've never been to northern Louisiana. No, neither. Well, I've kind of driven through it, but I don't know. So if you guys have anything, if you live in those towns or you know of anything around those towns that's spooky, spooky, that's spooky or weird as fuck or haunted, yeah. We want to check it out. We need to go to Eureka Springs. That too. Because that's an easy trip. We, let's see. I don't know. We're a lot. down. We are down to clown. We're we just clown. need suggestions. And we have a GoPro and we're going to record this. We do? Well, I'm still in it for Max's dad. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm like, damn, I didn't yes. know that. Yes, I'm well, stealing that makes it. it. I, I saw what? it on his okay. dresser the other night and I was like, you don't, what? Give me this. Which one of us yahoos is going to know how to use a gun? I feel like you just push go and put it on your head and then you're a pro. Oh my gosh. Follow me for more tech advice. <laughs> Lord, we need like a, a tech person to follow us person. around. I have all my problems are tech related. I can't figure anything mm-hmm. out. I feel like I should be young enough to know, but I no. I can't. I no. don't know. I'm not savvy in that regard. Are you planning any Halloween outfits ahead of time? You know what you're going to be at? I'm not going to tell you now. <gasps> really? You I don't get- want everybody to know. It's going to be a surprise. Oh, okay. Well, you get four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday if you actually do. You- when are you going to trick or treat? When's Halloween? The 31st on Monday. I know the date, nerd. No, I know. I mean, like, it's on it's Monday. It's Monday. Yeah. We'll, we'll trick or treat Monday then. Okay. We trick or treat on Halloween. So you get five days. I consider Thursday, look, Thursday. Thursday's a, a costume. Friday's you, a costume. Are you having a party this year? Yeah, Saturday before Halloween. Before Halloween. Mm-hmm. Oh. I know, my. You have somewhere to be? No, I'm just saying oh. that's six costumes. Because <laughs> you don't want to re-wear. Well, I, yeah. <sighs> I'm getting excited. Just send us some shit, people. We want to go ideas. do some spooky, scary stuff. Yeah. Last year, we went to a haunted place in Little Rock, the Fee House. That was fun. I was terrified. You were terrified. I'm up in the attic. Lacey's, Talk to me if you- Lacey's just begging to be possessed. I was not about it. Who's to say I'm not already? There's probably someone out there that will. Your husband probably thinks you are. (laughs) Anyways, where are we next week? Delaware, right? Delaware. Delaware. Are you done? Do you have your case? Oh, I've written it. I am ahead of the game. It's mine. It's a rough one, though. I I feel like like last couple weeks, yeah, really, they're all bad. But Lord, they're like this Mm -hmm. next one. Mm. Well, on that note. On that note, bye. Bye.